Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 11.27 p.m. Monday night. Sorry to get this to you one day late, but it is totally worth the wait. This is a a great episode. Uh, We are in the middle of about two months worth of guest speakers while Hannah is taking a break, hanging out with her new baby. Uh, They are doing fantastic. They've even been at church the past few weeks. So if you haven't been around, um, everybody's great. And she is hanging out with us on Sundays um, and doing the welcome and all that sort of stuff. We're going to have her back pretty soon. Uh, We've got a few more guest speakers on the schedule. I'm really excited about this upcoming week. Uh, A guy named Josh Chan is speaking. Uh, He has um, spoken? Spake? Spaken once before at Different. And I loved it. He was really, really good. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to this one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we talk about Josh, let's talk about Sherry. Sherry is the speaker for uh, this past Sunday, and maybe you watched online already and heard her, and you know she was awesome, and you're just back to listen again, or maybe this is your first time. I can assure you, you are in for a treat. Uh, One announcement for you before we jump straight to Sherry. Um, Small groups, they're coming next week. Uh, With Hannah being out, we sort of forgot to tell you that they were on the way, so one Tampa group, two St. Pete groups, and one online virtual group. To sign up for any of them, just go to diff.church. You don't have to say .com or anything, just diff.church, and then click on groups, and then we will see you in the groups. It's very uh, low stress. There's no homework. There's no videos to watch. All we do is talk about the uh, message from the previous Sunday, and it's super open-ended conversation, and we would love to have you. Okay, as I promised, Sherry is about to bless us with some awesome stuff. Uh, She has spoken at different once before. Um, But a year ago, I shared the story of my upbringing and what led me to the path of deconstruction. And now I'd like to share where reconstruction has taken me since then. Um, It would have been a lot easier for me to just kind of tear down everything, burn it to the ground. All the structures that were harmful, just leave the good with the bad. It's harder sifting through rubble for little gems of truth. A lot of the time it feels useless. Other times it's enraging. And other times I can only just bask in the beauty of what I've found and know in my soul that I've found truth. I'm learning to accept that all of these moments are not only okay, but necessary parts of a life of faith. I do my best to expose myself to different perspectives and a major criticism I've heard of deconstruction from people who still practice evangelicalism is that deconstruction is simply throwing all theology out and becoming atheists. That is not my experience. (laughs) And I know it isn't the experience of many of you. We're here right now because we didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We knew in our souls there was still hope and healing to be found, and we weren't going to let anyone take that from us. However, many of us were intentionally indoctrinated with harmful ideology. And personally, I found it necessary for my own peace to intentionally replace that thinking with thoughts that are healing instead of harmful. That leaves me with a lot of questions, though. Like, what does salvation even mean to me anymore as someone that was saved approximately 157 times as a child? (laughs) This time's going to stick for sure. Why do I want to worship God anymore? 
What do all those heavy-feeling church words mean to me anymore? Salvation, praise, worship, prayer, sin, grace? A lot of these, Hannah's done a really good job of redefining for us to the point where I can just kind of remember off the top of my head. Sin, all the ways we harm each other um, and ourselves. Grace, all the ways we're made more heal and hold. I can wrap my mind around that. But today I want to dig a little deeper into a few of the topics that I've personally lost sleep over in the hope that maybe there's someone out there that's been asking themselves similar questions. Namely, I want to talk about sin, salvation, and worship. But before I do that, I want to define what I mean when I talk, I say, I use the word deconstruction versus reconstruction. Um, PNs described it once in a way that made a ton of sense to me, so please consider all of this a direct quote from him. (laughs) Can I have my first slide? I'm probably in the way. So... PNs define deconstruction as, well, kind of the whole process of faith, really. The first step is order slash orientation. This is your inherited faith tradition, so evangelicalism, whatever, fill in the blank. Next comes disorder, disorientation, or deconstruction. It's the period of questioning that faith. And then finally comes reorder or reorientation, reconstruction, which is the period of finding peace with ourselves in our journey. Okay, so I know that way seems pretty laid out, simple, linear. But really, steps two and three tend to fall in more of a cyclical pattern on different topics. It's really just kind of this pattern that goes over and over. And you may not finish hashing out one topic before another begins, kind of leading to this overlapping dance at times. And coming to terms with what this means for me and how it unfolds for me personally has been a reckoning. (laughs) Even writing the words in my PowerPoint disorder triggers a memory of being told Satan is the author of chaos. You're giving him a foothold. That's a whole other topic for another day. (laughs) Just going to put that over there. (laughs) But learning to sit with the discomfort of not knowing and not having all the answers has become a regular practice for me. I was raised in a culture of, if you're not ready to give an answer immediately to anyone who questions any aspect of your faith, your faith is weak. Sorry. And sitting with the unknown does not come naturally to me. But I'm learning to value and recognize that if faith is a coin, doubt is just the other side. You can't have one without the other, and both are equally valid and important. Okay, moving on to my three main points reorienting myself to the ideas of sin, salvation, and worship. And I had to pick the most casual topics, huh, Sherry? (laughs) All right, I will confess that out of total curiosity and also the desire to not bother Hannah while she's looking after a newborn, um, I plugged a few of these terms into ChatGPT just to come up with, like, just to see what would come up. (laughs) Under, so, write a definition of fill in the blank, from the perspective of a deconstructed Christian. And I actually liked some of it. (laughs) I shortened and clarified a lot of it, but it helped me kind of get started when I was feeling stuck. (laughs) So this is what it said for sin. So sin. From the perspective of a deconstructed Christian, sin can be understood as a concept that has evolved beyond its traditional theological roots. Instead of viewing sin as a transgression against the divine moral code established by God, consider another definition. Sin is a complex and culturally contextual concept that reflects, (coughs) excuse me, Mm. 
human actions or behaviors that cause harm, suffering, or injustice to oneself or others. It's not necessarily tied to the idea that offending God or driving a wedge between you and God, as it was put to me growing up. <coughs> Instead, sin is evaluated in light of ethical principles, societal norms, and personal values. In this view, sin is subjective and dependent on individual and collective interpretations of what is morally right or wrong. It's often examined through the lens of empathy, compassion, and social responsibility, rather than a strict adherence to the Bible. <clears throat> sin is seen as a human construct used to navigate the consequences of our actions and to encourage ethical reflection and personal growth. Not going to lie, I was pleasantly surprised at that. <laughs> it was kind of difficult for me to put reoriented topics into new words, especially when I find the old familiar thinking fighting in the back of my head. <clears throat> and a huge area of confusion I held for a long time was connected to being told that I needed to change all these things about myself that were wrong. My problem was, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't. I couldn't just pray the gay away. And God knows I tried for like 20 years. Didn't work. And thank God, now I know I don't need to change the human parts of myself that I was continuously shamed for. I know now that the best way I can find wholeness and healing is to just live my authentic life, exactly the way God made me, finding peace with my humanity. That being said, after going through 20-plus years of religious trauma, it's still difficult for me to differentiate what I just described with the parts of me that could and should continue to grow and change. I think it's human nature to be afraid of change and to even get defensive about it. No one likes being told they should change. And looking back, when I first started deconstructing, I think I shut myself down to self-reflection for a while. And I think that was okay. That muscle was exhausted from constantly scrutinizing and hating myself for things that I couldn't change. But now that I've had time to heal and recover, it's starting to feel safe again. And I want to start working that muscle again. Because when it comes right down to it, I don't want to stay the same. I don't want to ride the victim train forever. That asks nothing of me. If my only trick is pulling the victim card, the only luxury I get is playing, playing wounded avoider. And I don't want to be that person. So I'll pass the question along to you. Where do you find yourself on this spectrum? Does the very mention of sin spike your cortisol levels? If so, be kind to yourself. Take the time you need for your separation process to become more defined. And then make your own definition. Remembering that God knows, not only knows that we're human and is okay with that, but also give yourself permission to be human. <clears throat> okay, next is salvation. Salvation can be redefined as a deeply personal and evolving journey towards self-discovery, inner peace, and the realization of one's inherent worth and potential. Salvation is a transformative and individualized process of liberation from inner turmoil, self-doubt, and existential uncertainty. It's not solely tied to the concept of being saved from eternal damnation, but it's viewed as a path towards wholeness, self-fulfillment. It emphasizes self-empowerment, personal growth, and the pursuit of a meaningful and purposeful life. It recognizes that individuals have the capacity to find redemption, healing, and a sense of belonging with themselves and their communities. This perspective on salvation encourages a more introspective and inclusive approach to spirituality, 
where individuals are free to explore their inner selves, heal past wounds, and embrace their unique life journey. It highlights the importance of self-acceptance, self-compassion, and the recognition of one's inherent value and your potential for positive change. <clears throat> this is maybe the hardest one for me to grapple with. Some days I feel like I can't even talk about Jesus sometimes in deconstructed spaces because I know what a sensitive topic it is. So many people have suffered from religious trauma. I don't want to accidentally twist a knife in someone's still healing wound, but I still believe he gave his life for me. Separated from the requirement to evangelize and indoctrinate others with my personal beliefs, I don't know what it means anymore to call myself a Christian or if I want to claim that word at all, knowing that for so many Christian is a dirty word. A critical moment for me was realizing that I'm allowed to move from thinking that being a person of faith is about getting God right and moving into learning what it means to be human. Being a compassionate and loving person matters more to me than being a person who has a list of rules memorized. Learning how to heal from the past is much more important to me than being able to list off a, fact, a bunch of facts about God or the Bible. Jesus' greatest commandment was literally love God and love others like you love yourself. And as people do, we manage to make that so much more complicated than it needs to be. Um, Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 40 says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. But love, love was and sometimes still is a huge area of cognitive dissonance for me. Because how am I supposed to love a God genuinely if I'm only doing some because if I don't, I'm going to hell? Even on the more positive flip side, how do I love Jesus if I'm only doing so because I want to go to heaven? Love with ulterior motive isn't pure. And the dissonance gets even worse when you consider the biblical definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. At one point growing up, I was expected to memorize that entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, and I've long forgotten the majority of it, but what I can't forget is how I was made to feel <clears throat> like I was broken, the judgment, and an utter lack of patience with my questioning and my searching, and demands that I subscribe to their way or the highway, the ignoring of what I knew to be my truth. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. I know a lot of you have probably read it. And that title is unfortunately very true. So before I move on to my final topic, let me encourage you to explore what love means to you. Some people use love as a weapon. I only say or do this because I love you, or I don't want you to suffer or go to hell, fill in the blank. We know in our souls what is or isn't real love. Love is written in your DNA. And the beauty of God is in every breath we take. And no one can take that away from you. Finally, 
talk about worship. Worship can be redefined as a deeply personal and diverse expression of reverence, gratitude, and connection with the sacred or transcendent, free from rigid religious structures. Worship is a fluid and individualized practice that involves the intentional acknowledgement and appreciation of the awe-inspiring aspects of existence, the interconnectedness of all life, and the pursuit of a meaningful and purposeful life. It's open to interpretation and adaptation based on personal beliefs and experiences. Deconstructed Christian worship may encompass a wide range of activities and expressions such as meditation, contemplation, acts of kindness, creative endeavors, and engagement with the natural world. (coughs) It's less concerned with prescribed forms and more focused on fostering a sense of inner peace, compassion, and spiritual growth. This perspective on worship encourages a holistic approach to spirituality, where individuals are free to explore, explore, and define the relationship with God in ways that resonate with their personal understanding of truth and meaning. It emphasizes the importance of authenticity, inclusivity, and the ongoing quest for a deeper connection with the mysteries of existence. And when it comes right down to it, I realized that since I started deconstructing, I've been afraid to worship God in a traditional sense because so much previous praise was tinged with manipulation, colored with guilt, or just straight up fake. A performance that I felt I had to put on like I had to look like I had it all together. (coughs) A new frame of mind I've been working to adopt is falling is not a problem. God catches all that are falling so we can keep going. Worship is just a way of expressing gratitude for all the times he's caught up. I can't remember who said that, but it was probably Hannah. (laughs) But I love it. Worship is not just music. It's being kind to others, taking time to sit in silence and process your feelings from the day so they don't build and overwhelm you. It's staring at the ocean and sitting in awe of it, creating art or any other thing you can think of that makes you feel more healed and whole. Anything that helps us remember how to tap into God and out of sadness or anger. Also, if the idea of reconstruction, reorientation, is as intimidating to you as it was to me, one concrete idea I had was to go through all of my old Christian music playlists from when I was still deep in the evangelical sauce. There were a lot of them. But with my new views and values, it was easy to identify what still gives me joy and which ones were reminders of purity culture, guilt, and mindsets of being broken and worthless. I left the bad and saved the good, literally, to a new playlist. (laughs) It was simple, but it kind of just kind of was a little thing that just kind of got me out of my rut. Emotions that music can inspire are not intrinsically bad. Love on Top by Beyonce has key changes that can provoke an emotion. (laughs) But just because something can provoke an emotion doesn't make it manipulation. Some churches have used it as manipulation, sure. I've been subjected to repetitive lyrics and being handed a donation plate at a critical moment lots of times. But that doesn't mean that all worship forever afterwards (laughs) is like that. 
So I encourage you to tap into that new definition of worship. Explore a range of activities like medication, uh, med medication. Well. <laughs> as someone that takes antidepressants, that's, that, yeah, that works actually. <laughs> Checks out. Meditation, hi. <laughs> Acts of kindness, creativity, engagement with the natural world, anything that helps you feel more whole and healed. Mm, okay. <coughs> so my last point is, all this information's great. Now what? <clears throat> How am I supposed to internalize any of this when the world around me feels so hostile at times? When others don't understand or cast judgments, how do I deal with that? One of the best ways I've seen this explained is called The Allegory of the Cave by Plato. And if you've ever been small group with me, I'm so sorry. I've probably talked about this before. I talk about it once a quarter, but I just love it so much. And this time I brought pictures. <laughs> and don't worry, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, just a summary. But this explanation has really helped me understand more deeply and evolve, develop my empathy for others who are still under the teaching of harmful ideology. So the summary to enlightenment is painful and arduous, says Plato, and requires that we make four stages in our development. So the first is imprisonment in the cave, the imaginary world. Two, release from the chains, the real world. Three, ascent out of the cave, the world of ideas. And four is the way back to help others. <clears throat> so Plato's allegory of the cave, can you guys see? Am I in the way? Uh, uh, cool. <laughs> Plato's allegory of the cave is a concept devised by the philosopher to ruminate on the nature of belief versus knowledge. The allegory begins with prisoners who have lived their entire lives chained inside a cave. So that's what you can see in the bottom left corner. <clears throat> Behind the prisoners is a fire, and between the fire and the prisoners are people carrying puppets or other objects. These cast shadows on the opposite wall. The prisoners watch these shadows, believing this to be their reality, as they've known nothing else. Plato posits that one prisoner could become free. He finally sees the fire and realizes that the shadows are fake. This prisoner could escape from the cave and discover there is a whole new world outside that they were previously unaware of. So that's our fellow making his way up that tunnel and up to the sunlight. The prisoner would believe the outside world is so much more real than that in the cave. He would try to return to free the other prisoners. But upon his return, he's blinded because his eyes are not accustomed to actual sunlight. <coughs> the chained prisoners would see this blindness and believe they will be harmed if they try to leave the cave. Band, you can come back up. I'm almost done. If you've ever gone into a completely dark room after being in bright sunlight, you know that panic of temporary blindness. Once all I had was my phone flashlight, and I thought, oh, I'm good. No, <laughs> it barely helped, and I had to feel my way mostly by memory for good 10, 15 minutes until my eyes adjusted. <clears throat> now imagine you have a group of people in that lower left cave your family, your friends, your coworkers, who've lived in such dim lighting their whole lives. 
Their eyes are adjusted to the dark. Now imagine one who has escaped the cave, made it to the surface, and experienced the real world for the first time. Feeling the sun on their skin, smelling flowers and grass, feeling a gust of wind that almost knocks you off your feet, the relentless power of the ocean. And of course that person wants to go back and share these amazing things with their loved ones and tell them what they've learned. The shadows are fake. There's so much more to life that we're missing out on. But until a loved one has experienced that emergence from the cave themselves, how can they possibly comprehend what you're talking about? It's only natural for them to think you've lost your mind. Sometimes I feel that way about myself, just in general. <laughs> but keeping this allegory in mind has helped me remember that before my exit from the cave, I also would have accused a queer Christian of being a farce. I also would have cast judgment on a single mother just trying to survive. I would have thought that cutting off a loved one who was doing something against the Bible was love. Now that we know better, we can do better. And that gives me a lot of hope, and I hope it does for you as well. Let's pray. Loved ones, rest in the knowledge that you do not have to find all the correct answers to be known and loved. Rest in the knowledge that you are good and you are enough. Your questioning and seeking are a holy calling, and your doubts are precious, refining tools that lead you deeper into relationship with God, yourself, and others. Holy God, empower us to throw off the weights of performativity and seek instead genuine and healing connections. Help us give grace and understanding to those who may discredit us and to ourselves as we navigate our untraveled paths. Accept our offerings of just showing up and trying again and again to see you, to feel you, especially when our efforts feel pointless. Be with us and let us be comforted as we follow you into the unknown, that we are never alone or forgotten. Amen.